Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. My name is Eric Trexler. I'm the host of the show, but today I am going to be joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me on. How are you doing today? Doing well. How are you? I am doing great. Uh, the weather's been warm lately. We're getting those first like nice sunny days of the spring, which is always great to see. We've got a lot planned for the show today. It's going to be a great show, if I were to guess. Um, but before we get into that, uh, a couple reminders. If you like the show and you'd like to support it, of course, you could like, rate, and subscribe wherever you happen to get podcasts. If you want to support the show in a more financial way, you could use our discount code. Uh, it's SBSPOD. You can use that at bulksupplements.com and get a 5% discount off of your order. You could also potentially subscribe to the Mass Research Review, which we both co-author, or you could download Macro Factor. That is the diet app that we um, played a part in creating along with a really talented team uh, of very smart people. So uh, it's a great nutrition app. You can try it out with a free trial, see if you like it, and if you love it, stick around. Uh, okay, so moving on, road to the stage. How are things going? Uh, things are going well, and they have been going well for quite a while. So this is my uh, ever so slightly preemptive one-year retrospective. Um, Macro Factor launched in October uh, or September, late September, uh, but the internal alpha build dropped in February. So I have now been using it for 364 days. Tomorrow will be the one-year anniversary, which will have already passed by the time this episode comes out. Um, and so over the past year, where I've been uh, in a somewhat dedicated fashion focusing on my diet and nutrition more, uh, I'm down slightly in excess of 35 pounds, which I'm pretty stoked about. Um, and I'm feeling... I'm feeling truly and robustly in control of my weight for the first time probably in my adult life, uh, probably the first time since high school. Uh, high, in high school, it was much easier to manage because I had so few demands on my time that, uh, you know, if I wanted to lose 15 pounds between football and basketball season, like, whatever, I would just be on the court for 10 hours a day and just melt the weight off. But like, I, I don't have 10 hours a day to be on the court anymore, which is very unfortunate. Um, so yeah, it's, it's awesome. Um, and I think one of the things that has helped me the most is that I, I rarely do anything super strictly. And the same thing applies to my nutrition. Um, and I think one of the things that Macro Factor has helped me with is that there's no true failure condition. Um, like as long as you keep tracking uh, accurately and realistically, then, you know, if you just don't want to give a shit about your diet for a week or something, like that's fine. Like just go go and do whatever you want. But then you still have the data there to give you good, uh, good recommendations to kind of get back on track um, in a in a way that takes a lot of stress out of it. Like you, there's like, I don't have to worry about what do I need to do to get back on track? Like the numbers are there. I know exactly what I need to do. Um, and so, yeah, it's, it's been great. It's, uh, 
made the process so much easier than previous attempts to lose weight, and it's taken so much guesswork out of it. Um, so yeah, it, it will be a year tomorrow, and it's been a good year. Awesome. That's good stuff. Um, all right. So last episode, uh, I ended with a cliffhanger ending, and I mentioned that I would be talking a little bit about diet recomposition. I got some feedback. The people do not like cliffhanger endings, so uh, that will not be a staple of the show. But anyway, I wanted to make sure I covered this first so that it didn't find itself on the cutting room floor yet again. I wanted to make sure I got it in this episode. So it's a little Coach's Corner segment about how to set up a diet for recomposition. So if you're not familiar with the the term body recomposition, the, end, the, the general idea with recomping is that you are building muscle and losing fat at the same time. So um, this is somewhat related to the concept of main gaining, which has become uh, a more popular in the YouTube space lately. Uh, you might also call it gain-taining. Uh, that, that would be, I think, a synonymous way to phrase it. But the idea with those terms is that you're keeping body fat percentage relatively stable as you're gaining muscle and gaining weight along the way. Um, so the basic principle is kind of the same. You want to be making body composition progress without taking the kind of what's become the standard cyclical approach of I'm going to do a focused bulking phase and then a focused cutting phase. It's kind of doing both of those things simultaneously to an extent. Now, you might hear that idea of body recomposition and say, wait a minute, I know for a fact that that is impossible and something that should not be attempted. You know, you have to either bulk or cut. There is no middle ground. Um, and th the reality is it's not nearly as rare as some people would suggest. Like, uh, is it the most efficient way to approach muscle growth? Probably not. Just if we're looking at pure muscle growth over time, is it the most efficient way to lose fat? Again, maybe not. If, if, if you're defining efficiency as the most amount of weight or weight loss or fat loss in a given unit of time, then the more extreme you go, the more efficient theoretically. But what's nice about this is there is efficiency in the long run. So if you're able to do a muscle building phase where you're not uh, gaining what you perceive to be an excessive amount of fat that then has to be cut in a later phase, there is some inherent efficiency in trying to make incremental pro progress in both directions simultaneously. And like I said, a lot of people have suggested that this is a super rare thing that is only feasible for a very small percentage of the population. I think that empirical evidence is chipping away at that idea. So there was recently a review paper by uh, Chris Barakat and colleagues, and I thought it was a fantastic review paper. I'm going to link it in the show notes. But one of their main observations is this idea that recomposition is super rare is not compatible with the literature. In fact, recomposition is observed quite frequently in the literature, and in some cases, even in groups where you wouldn't maybe expect it to be a feasible outcome. So I'm going to get into who uh, 
is most likely to achieve recomposition and who is least likely. I'm gonna get into that in a minute, but first I want to at least deal with two questions that seem similar but are a little bit different. So I'm gonna talk about recomp recomping as a specific goal in and of itself. But it, I should acknowledge that sometimes recomposition happens along the way to a different goal. So what I mean by that is uh, sometimes people will be cutting and they'll say, well, how do I maximize the accretion or the retention of lean mass during my cut? Now, the goal there is not strictly recomposition. It's my goal is fat loss here, but how can I kind of hedge my bets to either retain or hopefully gain some lean mass along the way? So the, the best way to do that is just follow best practices for weight loss. Plenty of protein, small to moderate deficit, things like that. So I wanted to acknowledge that there are some cases where you might be cutting, but say, hey, how can I maybe open the door potentially to a little bit of recomposition? So that's how you would do that. Another way to look at this is sometimes people will say, hey, I'm bulking. The specific goal is I am bulking up here, gaining lean mass, but along the way, how do I minimize fat gain, you know, even at a given level of caloric intake? As we've talked about before, a high protein approach might be a way that you can minimize some of that uh, unwanted fat gain just because it gives you a little more flexibility in terms of the thermic effect of feeding. There's usually a, a an effect by which high protein increases satiety, so you're less likely to go well above your caloric target just because the protein's making you full. Uh, so th there, there are uh, argu arguments to be made that a a bulk with low protein at 4,000 calories is going to lead to potentially more fat gain than a bulk with really high protein at 4,000 calories. So I wanted to acknowledge that those are slightly different questions that are not the focus of this segment. The focus of this segment is I want to recomp. Like that is my explicit goal. I'm not just trying to save muscle during a cut or something like that. So the first set of questions is, first of all, when is this actually likely? Like who is going to successfully recomp? Uh, there are a number of characteristics that may re make recomping more feasible for a given individual. So first of all, if you're brand new to training, you are absolutely primed for recomping. Uh, you have so much ability to gain lean mass that you can do it in less than favorable uh, or less than optimal scenarios, such as a caloric deficit as long as it's not an enormous caloric deficit. Yeah, I, you don't even have to go that far. I mean, like one one of the pretty consistent observations in uh, in the literature just looking at like lifestyle interventions to get people more active is if you take someone who's completely untrained and very sedentary and just have them like walk more often or do like 30 minutes on the treadmill three times a week, they very often... Uh, gain like a, a non-trivial amount of lean mass in their lower body and drop eh, maybe like half a kilo of, of fat or something. So if you're untrained enough, you can recomp just from walking. Like yeah. it's it's not, yeah, it's the whole point of the segment. It's not something that's just like completely unknown to science. Like it, under this, the circumstance you're talking about, someone who's completely untrained it doesn't even take that much stimulus at all to accrete some lean mass. 
Right. And, and that was something that was noticed in, I, I recently talked about that meta analysis by James Steele and colleagues about like interval training versus um, continuous steady state training. And in both cases, uh, an accretion of lean mass was observed. And that was because they were looking mostly at untrained people. And like you said, if you take an untrained person and say, hey, why don't you jog a few times a week? They're probably going to gain some lean mass in a lot of cases. Mm -hmm. uh, so if you're... Um, brand new to training, or if you're coming off of an extended layoff. Uh, so if you had been highly trained and you've been out of the gym because of a COVID lockdown, you've been out of the gym because of an injury and not doing other stuff at home to kind of maintain muscle. Again, you're going to be primed for muscle growth uh, and, and recomping would be very feasible. If you're making a very substantial change to your diet or your training. So like, for example, I started training really hard at the age of 12. Uh, could I have recomped at the age of 18 when I started training like uh, a more informed lifter? Absolutely. Because like you could be six years trained at the age of 18, but, but if you've been following really silly programs, making a substantial improvement to your training approach could open the door to recomposition because you should be tapping in to a really different stratosphere of gains once you figure out how to how to improve your training uh if you have plenty of room to grow before you reach your genetic limit of muscularity wherever that may be uh then then recomping might be feasible if you have plenty of body fat to lose um like you know if, if when we did our um participant level meta-analysis on in, in the whole p ratio debate what we found was you know, any semblance of recomping or even just gaining lean mass without fat mass gain accompanying it, uh, very feasible unless you start getting down into that, you know, six, seven, eight percent body fat range. So if you're super lean, recomping is going to be a hard thing to do. But if you've got some body fat to lose, it might be quite feasible. And then, of course, if you are making pharmacological changes that alter your state of anabolic potential, uh, then certainly a lot of things can happen, including recomposition. Now, when is it unlikely? That's purely the inverse. If you're extremely advanced and you're near your genetic muscular limit and you're continuing your normal training and diet practices and you're very lean, like those are all things that would make uh, recomping less feasible or at least would shrink the potential magnitude of recomposition. You have less to work with there. And of course, if you're in a large deficit, that can make it uh, very challenging as well. To, to a, at a certain point, being in a huge caloric deficit is going to make it very difficult to be gaining lean mass as you're losing that fat mass. So that kind of covers who it's for, who might be able to attain this. Like I said, it's been observed in the literature many, many, many times. It is not a rare thing. Um, but one of the things I'm noticing is increasingly people are suggesting that you have to have super, super high protein in order to successfully recomp. Um, and like I said, if, if you are going to be bulking at a fixed number of calories and saying, Will I have a leaner bulk with 300 grams of protein a day instead of 75? The answer is yes. Now, is it how much does that matter? Is it meaningful? Which diet is more enjoyable? Those are all up for debate. But um, the idea that you necessarily must have a super high protein approach, uh, 
I just simply haven't seen convincing evidence to support the claim. Now, I have seen one uh, piece of evidence that is often cited, um, and I simply disagree with the conclusion uh, respectfully. So one of the places I, I see people making this claim or the, the place people are citing does go back to that review paper by uh, Chris Barakat and colleagues. And like I said, I thought it was a terrific paper and I have a tremendous amount of respect for everybody involved with it. I mean, it was uh, Chris Barakat, Jeremy Pearson, Guillermo Escalante, Bill Campbell, uh, Eduardo D'Souza. I mean, these are terrific researchers, so I, I don't want it to sound like I'm being uh, critical. But a lot of times people point to that study and say, see, you, you need to go above your normal protein intake if you want to do recomp. Now, I consider kind of the standard protein range for lifters. Everybody knows the range, right? 1.6 to 2.2 grams of protein per kilogram of body mass per day. That's kind of the standard recommendation. Now, if you look in that paper by Barakat and colleagues, there's a table, I believe it was table three, where it's looking at instances of recomposition in people who are fairly well-trained and lifting weights and things like that. Now, one of the fascinating things is that like, if you look at that table, which is probably the most relevant table for most of our listeners and, and readers, uh, it's really hard to look at the data summarized there and say, oh yeah, you need to go from high protein to extra high protein when you're recomping. Uh, one of the things that will jump out to you if you look into it is um, most of the studies in the table, they are comparing two different groups within each study that are eating the same amount of protein. Uh, and in most cases, everyone in every study is eating plenty. We're talking about 1.6 grams per kilogram or higher. So there's not even a lot of studies that have the possibility of making that argument within this summary table. Like, if you're not comparing low versus high protein, it's going to be very difficult to say this is really solid evidence that you need to go super high with your protein. Now, there was one exception. It was a study by Campbell and colleagues that really was looking at a discrepancy in protein intakes between one group and the other. Um, but if you look closely at the data, you know, what, what, they, what, what they summarized in the table was uh, both groups increased fat-free mass, but only the high protein group lost a significant amount of fat mass. If you look more closely at it, what you see is the, the high protein group gained 2.1 kilograms of fat-free mass versus only 0.6 in the low protein group. Uh, so to me, understanding how protein works, one group was eating sufficient protein, the other was eating insufficient protein, just based on the normal uh, 1.6 to 2.2 range that we typically used. So that's not surprising. That, that's a very straightforward finding. You know, get into the optimal protein range and you're going to be happier with your fat-free mass gains. Now, the, the part that caught me was only the high protein group lost a significant amount of fat mass, um, which would kind of lean into this idea that when you go higher with protein, some kind of magic's going on with recomposition. If you look at it, the high protein group lost 1.1 kilograms of fat mass. The low protein group lost 0.8. That's a, two very similar numbers, especially when you consider body composition was measured using A-mode ultrasound, which is a really nice piece of equipment. The portability, the affordability, the convenience, it's a very nice tool. But 
I'm not going to get too excited about a discrepancy of 300 grams when we're talking about A-mode ultrasound. It's just simply not that precise. So there's really only one study there where you would look at it and say, okay, maybe there is more benefit to recomping at higher versus lower, but it's just kind of putting us into the range that we already recommend, whether you're cutting or bulking anyway. Mm -hmm. And there's really no direct evidence to suggest that going beyond that is necessarily helpful Aside from just the very straightforward facts we talked about, uh, I think it was last episode or the one before, we talked about the protein overfeeding research, like the studies by Antonio and colleagues and things like that. Very straightforward stuff. If you're on a super high protein diet, it's going to be satiating. You're going to have a high thermic effect of feeding. That might attenuate fat fat gain to some extent because of very straightforward mechanisms. Um, uh, but But you could achieve the same thing by making different food choices and different macro choices. Like there, there's nothing magic about it. It's just about managing your caloric intake and your caloric surplus. Um, and then of course, if you're going from insufficient protein to sufficient, uh, of course, that's going to increase your ability to, uh, to gain fat free mass. But we have no direct evidence that says when you're recomping, you need to go beyond and above the uh, the typical range of 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram. So my opinion, how do you set up a diet for recomping? Uh, you have three options when it comes to just pure weight change, right? So you could aim for no weight change at all, stay totally weight stable, or you could argue that maybe it would be appropriate, depending on your situation, to aim for a modest magnitude of weight loss or a very modest magnitude of weight gain. I think the classical approach is to do this in a manner that is weight stable, where weight is not changing significantly. But theoretically, you might be able to see a little upward or downward trend and still call it recomposition. But what you don't want to do is do a really aggressive cut or a really aggressive bulk and, and try to basically pray for this idea that you're going to have substantial recomposition. And, and I think it's also worth noting that if you're not going for the weight neutral approach, if you're trying to either gain or lose weight, recomposition is probably going to be much more likely with a slow rate of weight loss than a slow rate of weight gain. Mm -hmm. Just purely based on how the math works out, uh, fat is something like five times as, as energy dense as muscle is. And so... Um, you know, if you are weight stable, you lose a pound of fat, you gain a pound of muscle, you're weight stable, but you are still in a calorie deficit just because that pound of fat represented uh, so, so much more energy that was being expended. Um, and generally, it's not, it's not that hard to gain maybe a little bit of muscle while you're losing maybe a little more fat. So, you know, if you drop two kilos of fat, gain one kilo of muscle... Uh, you've lost weight. That's that's a pretty feasible thing. Uh, but on the flip side, to recomp while gaining weight, that implies that you're gaining quite a bit of muscle. Quite quickly. While also probably still being in a small calorie deficit. Yeah. Um, so, you know, if you, uh, if you did put on like three kilos of muscle and lose a kilo of fat, that may be very feasible for a completely untrained lifter, a detrained lifter getting back into it. But if you're if you're reasonably well trained, it's gonna take you a long time to put on those three kilos of muscle. Um, and like, who knows? Maybe maybe you lose a kilo of fat in the process, but that that's going to be a very very prolonged process to pull that off. 
and you're going to need to be really quite precise with virtually everything you're doing. So of these options, uh, a, ma a modest rate of weight loss or being roughly r weight neutral, I think are probably more generally feasible uh, situations for recomping versus a modest rate of weight gain. Like it, it is yeah. theoretically possible if you're gaining weight, it's just quite a bit less likely. Yeah, the, the theory suggests it can be done, but practically speaking, it's it's quite a long shot and you need a lot of things to line up in your favor. Um, so when it comes to the priorities for setting up a diet for recomping, what you want to make sure is, first of all, looking at total energy intake. It's got to be low enough to be compatible with a modest rate of fat loss, but caloric intake cannot be so low as to dramatically blunt hypertrophy. And there was a recent meta-analysis by Murphy and colleagues where they looked at how a certain magnitude of energy deficit impacts hypertrophy potential. And what they found was that as the energy deficit grew by 100 calories a day, uh, the effect size for gains in lean mass did drop um, by about 0.03 units. Now, that's practically not very easy to kind of digest, but I think that the key takeaway there is as the deficit got bigger, lean mass gains became more challenging. And as the deficit got up to about 500 calories per day, that was where the regression line predicted a, a full, uh, essentially a full attenuation of gains in lean mass. Now, I'm not saying that that is a generalizable theoretical truth and that no one can gain lean mass in a 500 calorie per day deficit, but that's where the data indicated as you're getting up near 500 calories a day for your deficit, it's going to be pretty tough sledding. So I think that's helpful in kind of dictating the ideal deficit to shoot for and as an extension of that kind of what kind of rate of weight loss you, you can potentially be aiming for uh, you know as you extend that information out the other thing you want to focus on so calorie intake has to be low enough to support some fat loss but high enough to support uh, gains in lean mass you also need to make sure that your protein is high enough to support gaining muscle. So in most cases, based on the evidence I'm seeing, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of body mass still seems to be a good range there. Nothing wrong with going higher, but uh, there are obviously trade-offs. As protein gets higher, it starts displacing other macronutrients. It starts limiting food choices to some extent. It can make you so full that it's kind of challenging to maintain a diet in some cases. Uh, so 1.6 to 2.2 should be fine in many cases, but since that's scaled to total body mass, it can really fall apart when you get to extreme ends of, of body composition ranges just based on normative data. So, uh, you know, because th that ultimately, that range was calculated based on the typical body comp of the typical study participant. Uh, so pretty much a large portion of it is college-aged folks and say, hey, you want to come do a study and make 75 bucks? Like, that's pretty much where that that number's coming from. Yeah. So if you're really, really lean, um, you know, uh, or, or you're on the higher end of the body fat spectrum, those numbers might not work out as well. In that case, I'd say probably somewhere between 2 and 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass, just making your best estimate. That should put you in a pretty similar range. You can make an evidence-based argument that there are some circumstances 
where in order for recomping to be feasible, you should bump that up to 2.3 to 3.1 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. But from the data I've seen, the only situation where that really applies is if you're quite lean or dieting very hard and you're just trying to hang on to some hope of retaining or potentially gaining fat-free mass in the process. But that scenario alone is automatically a bit of a long shot for recomposition. So my recomposition guideline, like I said, 1.6 to 2.2 grams per kilogram of total mass or 2 to 2.75 grams per kilogram of fat-free mass. If you're in a physiological state where recomping is feasible, those guidelines should make it happen. If you're in a state where body body recomposition is not feasible for you, uh, then then it ain't going to work. Uh, and so that's the reality of the situation. But I think uh, getting back to the perception of the feasibility of recomping, I think it is a goal that is accessible to more people than the average lifter might think. Makes sense to me. All right. So moving on, Greg, I understand that you have a research review about a topic that I'm sure uh, will excite many, many of our listeners. Yeah, yeah. So this is a, a little research review about French fries, uh, but it's actually more than anything just kind of an object lesson in not taking nutritional epidemiology too literally uh, sometimes. So uh, yeah, so I, I don't plan on digging super far into this paper, um, mostly just using it to, to make a point. So anyway, uh, hot off the presses, title of the paper is French Fried Potato Consumption and Energy Balance, a Randomized Control Trial by Smith and Colleagues, recently published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Uh, and so th this is a delightful study. I don't know why, but I, I enjoy RCTs where they're just feeding people individual foods and seeing what happens. Uh, one of my favorite studies of all time, I refer to it as the Muffin Study, uh, because it's one of the only RCTs I'm aware of where the actual experimental manipulation being done was just feeding people muffins. Um, so I, I'm already off track, uh, but whatever, we're just going to roll with it. In that study, um, they, they basically fed people the same muffins. One group was fed a muffin where the, uh, the fats used to make the muffin uh, all came in the form of saturated fats. The other group... Uh, all of the fats in the muffins were polyunsaturated fats. And uh, basically over over the course of the study, like there wasn't a training intervention or anything like that. It's basically just we're going to feed you these muffins and we're going to feed you these muffins as a mechanism of manipulating your daily uh, fatty acid intake, whether saturated or polyunsaturated, and then just look to see what effects that has on body comp, metabolic markers, etc. Um, and if memory serves in that study, the saturated fat uh, muffin group um, gained a non-trivial amount of fat, really nothing much happened to lean mass, and the polyunsaturated group uh, actually gained a non-trivial amount of lean mass without much going on in the way of fat, uh, just purely from an overfeeding intervention. And so one, I just find that delightful. You know, you recruit a bunch of subjects. You say like, hey, we're going to pay you to eat muffins for a few months. Will you come to the lab and eat muffins from time to time? Like, I think that's incredible. Uh, but then two, when it came out, it was kind of at the peak of um, 
I think just kind of like the general backlash to the uh, the FDA's guidelines around um, uh, saturated fat consumption and like does that cause heart disease or whatnot. Like that was when there was a lot of energy in the oh actually all of this is wrong. Eat as much saturated fat as you want. It's totally fine. It, it was like at the peak of that uh, discourse. And so when that paper dropped, there were a lot of people who were very upset about it, yeah. and that made it uh, even more fun to me. So anyway, let's you know, get... There, oh. there, I, I think we have passed the peak where there is major backlash saying, hey, stop being mean to saturated fats. Mm -hmm. But we are at a new peak where the uh, just enthusiastic terror and fear associated with polyunsaturated fats is through the roof so uh we're changing one peak for the other but i'm sure people would be just as upset if that paper yeah. came out today that is probably true actually i have a question for you and if you don't know the answer i have a question for the audience okay so what's the deal with seed oils like so i i i mean i know what they are but i do remember maybe 10 years ago Everyone was up in arms about seed oils and omega-6s specifically. And then, like, that basically seemed to die down quite a bit. And then in my last uh, uh, Instagram story Q&A session, I got, like, a half dozen questions about seed oils. What do? Like, are they going to kill me fast or kill me slow? Um, and it, it seemed to have come out of nowhere. I haven't really seen that discourse percolating and then all of a sudden it's just i do a q a and a bunch of people have questions about that so it, has there been a new like major piece of media released about seed oils that might be um motivating that that line of questioning i don't think so i i think it has just kind of um that interest has kind of formed in parallel with the increased interest in carnivore diets mm. and people have said like okay all i eat is steak now what are the multifaceted uh avenues i can approach to make this sound really cool and good mm. and and i think one of the areas people have circled in on is like well at least i'm not eating seed oils anymore yeah um but the only uh, stuff I've seen about it has just said like, hey, listen, oxidation is bad and, you know, you should only eat steak. That's about as far as I like, I'm not deep into the research on it, but I have looked at all the research that would kind of poke and prod at the theoretical outcomes that would be observed if all this mechanistic speculation were true and relevant and it looks like seed oils are completely fine if you look at any like meaning clinically meaningful outcome. Yeah. So that's kind of why I haven't dug too deep into the mechanistic arguments is because like if something is that scary and poisonous and toxic and bad, like it shouldn't be that hard to find clinically relevant evidence. Yeah. Yeah. Know? Yeah. That that was that was my assumption. I haven't really looked into that research because I don't care. Um <laughs> So anyway, it, it seems that you are not aware of like any new discrete like major piece of media that's really put that on people's radar. So listeners, if if there's something we don't know about that kind of uh, uh, a paradigm shifting thing that has relodged this in the public consciousness, let me know. I'm genuinely curious because uh, it really did just seem to come out of nowhere.
Um, all right, now getting back to French fries uh, after that <laughs> very long diversion. So, um, like I said, I mostly wanted to talk about this study as an object lesson um, related to how literally maybe we should take uh, findings from nutritional epidemiology. So this was an RCT, a randomized control trial. So you have multiple groups, people are randomized to groups, and the theoretically the only difference in intervention between groups is just what they're being fed. So, you know, variables are being controlled. This is the type of uh, the type of research one would use to make causal inferences uh, if there were strong causal inferences to be made. So anyway, this study had 180 participants, took place over 30 days. There were three groups. All three groups were uh, prescribed calorie-matched nutritional interventions per day. So uh, one group consumed 300 calories of almonds per day. One group consumed uh, 300 calories of just plain french fries per day. And one group uh, consumed 300 calories of french fries with herbs and spices per day. Um, and that was it. Like basically told people, Hey, go about your life, but you need to eat either these almonds or these French fries. Um, and so they did that for a month and then basically they just came back in, uh, put them through a battery of tests to, to look at markers of metabolic health, uh, assessed weight, assessed body comp. And, uh, I mean, you can read this paper for yourself, but the conclusion from the abstract sums it up pretty well. Uh, there were no significant differences in fat mass or in glucoregulatory biomarkers after 30 days of, of potato consumption versus almonds. Results do not suggest a causal relationship between increased French fried potato consumption and the negative health outcomes studied. So the reason this is relevant is the framing of this study was basically just like, hey, if you look at nutritional epidemiology, it seems like people who consume both a lot of potatoes generally, but then specifically fried potato products, which fried potato products, you're talking about uh, French fries and potato chips. That's about it. Um, like that tends to be associated with negative cardiometabolic health outcomes and uh, increased body weight, increased fat mass, increased uh, rates of obesity. And basically the inverse of all of that I just said is true of almonds. Uh, almond consumption on a population level seems to be associated with uh, improved cardiometabolic health outcomes, uh, lower body weight, uh, lower rates of obesity, etc. Um, and this is one of those things that isn't just like a one-off finding. Like you, you will see those associations with both almonds and fried potato products pop up not infrequently in the nutritional epidemiological research. Um, but, you know, from that data, you're looking at associations. So you can't draw causal inferences. So that's the value of an RCT like this one. Uh, like, hey, based on, uh, based on associations, seems like maybe potatoes bad, almonds good. Let's actually test it in RCT to see if that is the case. And it didn't really pan out. Uh, and so, like I said, I mostly wanted to talk about this as kind of an object lesson for maybe why you shouldn't worry all that much about nutritional epidemiological findings, um, or at least take them super literally all the time. And I think that's especially true as it relates to individual foods. So, you know, 
I, I feel like twice per year, uh, we'll just see a spate of headlines from New York Times, Washington Post, like just a bunch of legacy media saying like, oh, new study came out. Turns out people who eat chocolate uh, live longer or people who drink red wine have lower rates of cancer or whatever. Um, and, and it's just all based on epidemiological findings and people just take it and run with it and and not always but often present it as if it's a causal relationship like there will be recommendations to readers at the end of the article and it'll be like you know what don't go crazy on the chocolate but like eat a little dark chocolate a day like that's going to make you healthier uh and, and that type of advice even if you're interpreting the study as non-causal evidence if you are giving that advice to readers you're functionally interpreting it as causal because you're saying if you do this thing, you will get this outcome. Like that's that's a causal chain. Uh, so even if you actually talk about the study itself appropriately, if that's the outcome of of your advice that's flowing from it, you're interpreting it as if it's causal. Um, and then that type of research can also have a tendency to confuse people because oftentimes you can find very very conflicting results. Like there was. There was a good article, I think in 538 about this, maybe two or three years ago, where they took uh, like a dozen different foods and they just looked to see every time that they had been shown to be associated with changes in cancer risk uh, or, or, or differences in cancer risk within the research and just, just plotted all of the individual studies from nutritional epidemiological research. And it's basically like, oh, hey, if you look at red wine, it's either going to cut your cancer risk by 80% or increase it by 30%. We have these range of findings. And like, theoretically, that's why meta-analyses exist. But, you know, for individual consumers, uh, it's it's not hard. It's easy to remember headlines. And like, maybe you saw a headline that said, oh, hey, guess what? Wine gives you cancer. And then a year later, you, you see a headline that says, guess what? Wine protects you against cancer. And like, it, it can be very confusing and more to the point, you can't use that research to draw causal inferences. You you do need RCTs for that. Um, and I, I just feel like this study was a nice little uh, object lesson. And one of the reasons why it is iffy to draw causal inferences from epidemiological research like that is moving a layer deeper than the issues associated with interpreting associations causally. There's also, um, so, so generally in a study like that, what you're going to do is you're going to find what, what differs within the population, but then, you know, you know that that one thing that you're looking at isn't, isn't in and of itself causing the divergences in health outcomes you see. So then what you try to do is you build a model where you co-vary for, uh, other relevant characteristics that might also influence the health outcome you're interested in. So, for example, if, if you look at French fry consumption and uh, cancer or whatever, um, and you see that, like, hey, people who consume a lot of French fries also tend to smoke more. Like, okay, well, we do now we need to co-vary for smoking status to make sure that we aren't saying, like, oh, hey, French fries are bad, uh, but really it's it's just that... A lot of smokers eat French fries, and like that's why the data is shaking out the way it is. So you you identify those things, you co-vary for all of the things that you think might also be independently influencing the outcome, apart from just 
the variable of interest. But that is far from a perfect science. And um, even if it could theoretically work, if you had all of the data about all of the individuals in that study, like, you know, if you didn't have 100 data points per person, but you had a, a million data points per person to, to literally adjust for every conceivable difference, who knows, maybe theoretically, then, then things would shake out better. But that's just simply not the data we're working with. You know, you have, uh, for a really robust epidemiological data set, maybe 100 variables per person. And that's not going to fully encapsulate everything about all of those people's lives. And so specific to, uh, to this study, you think about almonds. Well, what do you think about? Well, one... Um, and, and you, like, I, I didn't even think of this, but you brought it up before we started recording. If you look at the marketing around almonds, uh, you know, they're, they're pretty explicitly, at least in America, marketed as a health food. Almost a superfood. Yeah, yeah. And so, you know, then you have to ask yourself, like, well, is that going to, cor- is that going to correlate with different behaviors? So when people start eating more almonds, are they maybe doing so because they're trying to adopt a lot of just generally healthy lifestyle habits, one of which happens to be eating almonds, and maybe they lose weight, and maybe the almonds didn't have a goddamn thing to do about it because, you know, they were doing a dozen other things that may have been contributing to that outcome. Um, Another thing about almonds, they're kind of expensive. Like, they're not as expensive as, like, walnuts or pecans, but, like, nuts are reasonably expensive, and even almonds being one of the cheaper nuts, like they're still more expensive than a lot of foods that you could be buying. And so almond consumption is probably also going to be associated with socioeconomic status, which like, even if you do adjust for it in analyses, like there are probably still other kind of like latent behaviors or characteristics that you're not quantifying that maybe you should also adjust for, but you can't adjust for because it's not in the data set. And so like, you know, ultimately, are you picking up the independent effects of almonds or are almonds just kind of a stand in for a cluster of related variables that are ultimately driving the differences you're seeing on a population level? That's what I what I tend to believe is going on there. Um, so anyway, yeah, uh, I, I'm not talking about this study to recommend that you eat a bunch of almonds. I'm not talking about this study to recommend that you eat a bunch of French fries talking about this study to recommend that the next time you see a bunch of breathless headlines saying, you know, X is associated with Y, uh, like, like X food is associated with Y health outcome on a population level. Look to see if there are any RCTs. Ask yourself some probing questions like, hey, what other behaviors or characteristics might be associated with consumption of this food item? Like, do I think that this food item is actually playing a causal role here? Um, and yeah, just just don't take that stuff quite as literally uh, until it is actually confirmed by RCTs. Man, I have so much to say, and I will certainly miss about half of those things because I oh, didn't so take s- notes. Say as much as you want. Um, uh, we need to record two episodes this week, so if anything on this outline can get pushed to the next one, I'm not going to be upset about it. Yeah, but don't say what got pushed because that's another cliffhanger. <laughs> and I, I, my hate mail folder is closed. Um, 
You know, it's funny, you, you mentioned the cost. Um, for some reason, this is like a, a memory that's like burned into my brain. You know, growing up as a kid, I would always like have a just a tiny bit of like internalized guilt if I did things that were expensive, like mm -hmm. to my parents. And it's not not at all because they prompted that in any way. Like I just for, for some reason was born with this knowledge like, dude, you are like really costing resources here. So like tread lightly and don't like, you know, spend your parents like you know, don't burn through their retirement account just being wasteful. The first time I ever bought nuts as an independent adult, I was like horrified. <laughs> like I was like, oh, I, I like almonds. I'll go check those out. And I saw the cost at the supermarket and I immediately was like, dude, I think I owe my parents like $10,000 because I ate a lot of nuts growing up. So yeah, the, the cost component is like uh, something that shouldn't be overlooked. And like you said, with, with something like almonds, because they're so explicitly marketed as a healthful snack option, I wouldn't be shocked to see just from that one example, you know, someone who abruptly increases their intake of almonds also is revisiting their sleeping pattern and also is exercising more regularly and also is trying some more stress management techniques, like a whole cluster of healthy decisions that goes along with that behavior change. Mm -hmm. um, but, but more to the point of uh, epidemiology, um, you know, I've been involved in epidemiology research projects and I, I don't want it to seem like we're saying, oh, epidemiology is, is weak science. Just let that go in one ear and out the other. It serves a really important purpose and all types of research do. But what's really important is that when we see the headline, you got to unfortunately reward them with the clicks, which yeah. it sucks. But you got to at least take a look and say, was this in a Petri dish? Was it in a mouse? Was it in a fruit fly? Was it in a huge, you know, collection of surveys? Was this a randomized controlled trial? You got to get an idea of what kind of research it was that they're reacting to. And then you have to acknowledge the shortcoming of every single type of research, RCTs included, right? So if it happened in a Petri dish or a, flute, uh, a fruit fly or a mouse, immediately you have to say, well, let's wait and see. Yeah. You know, someone will follow up with more data. Yeah. And that's fine. It's okay to take a wait and see approach. Something is an epidemiology finding. You say, okay, well, that's interesting. Let's see if this gets, gets replicated uh, experimentally. Mm -hmm. Someone comes out with a randomized controlled trial and there's 12 participants per group. You say, well, that's an interesting finding, but am I necessarily certain that those 12 people represent the global population uh, or the population that is most relevant to me? Yeah. Probably not, right? So whatever layer of research you're looking at, there's going to be limitations, even the renowned meta-analysis, right? So I mentioned uh, an analysis, a meta-analysis earlier where I said, yeah, the analysis indicated 500 calories per day is a big enough deficit to blunt your lean mass gains, but don't take it too literally. And the reason I say that is a meta-analysis can only calculate based on the data that exist. Yeah. And the data that exist are dependent upon the conditions in which they're collected. Mm -hmm. And so uh, you might look, for example at a body of literature and find bias that is built into the literature 
and cannot be untangled without more research, right? So if you're looking at high versus low protein intakes in a big meta regression, but you also notice most of the high protein studies are specifically in elderly folks, and a lot of the other studies are more likely to be in younger folks, now you've got age and protein level kind of intermingled and you can't parse those out without additional stuff. Oh, yeah. I, you you actually see this all the time in uh, a, a type of meta-analysis that I understand why it exists, but I personally don't like it. Um, so there, there's a certain genre of meta-analysis where they essentially take just all of the studies that have reported on a particular outcome and then... Uh, and it's not necessarily studies where like one group does X, one group does Y, and then like compare between the two groups. Those those are, are my favorite type types of metas. But th- this type that I'm talking about, basically you just get all of the studies that report on a particular outcome, and then you just look to see kind of between studies what study characteristics are predictive of better or, or, or of better results for the outcome of interest. Um, and so, like, in, in one of those that comes to mind, I think it was just looking at, like, what resistance training variables are associated with lean mass gains in female lifters. I think that's what it was. Um, but one of the things that they found was that uh, the length of the training intervention was negatively associated with lean mass gains. In other words, if you interpreted that literally, the longer someone trains, not the the less not basically like it, it's not saying the rate of gains slows down over time it's saying the absolute gains are smaller with longer training intervention so you know if you interpreted that literally like hey i train for three months and put on five kilos of muscle mass and then over the next three years i lose two kilos and and that's what i should expect so over time i only gain three kilos or or something like that um but much like you're getting at the 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 thing that was actually driving that finding was that most of the really long-term interventions were in elderly subjects because most of the studies in younger people, it's, it's college kids. And so you're pretty much limited by the length of a semester. And so those studies run 16 weeks if you're really on the ball and you can get everyone in the lab on day one. Typically, you're limited to about 12 weeks tops. Um, and so like, yeah, a lot of those studies, people gained a fair a fair bit of lean mass. In studies on older subjects who are maybe community dwelling, and you can run a resistance training study for two years, yeah, they don't gain all that much muscle, but they're older, um, they're generally less active, generally less healthy, and also just generally not training very hard uh, because <laughs> because they're super old and you're not putting them on uh, a super super intense training program. So yeah, I, I mean like. That is a finding you could come away from a particular meta-analysis with. Like, hey, the longer you train, the less lean mass you gain. Again, not on a cumulative basis, on an absolute basis. Um, or not on a, a marginal basis, I mean. Um, but yeah, like 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 you're saying, you have to put that in context of, well, what, what was this meta actually doing and what were the studies that went into it? Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing that people will push back when you start talking about this, whether they're looking at a meta-analysis, meta-regression, or an epidemiology paper is, you know, there's a certain level of insight where you're not familiar with the research and you don't even think about covariates. 
And then you learn more about research and you start to embrace covariates and you put too much confidence in what they're actually doing. So I've seen this before where I say, yeah, I'm not really excited about that finding because of this, that, and the other factor. And someone says, well, no, but they, they controlled for that. And I go, well, they covaried for it, yeah. you know, and it's not necessarily the same thing, you know. So when you start digging into some of these models, and this is especially true in epidemiology, you have to start worrying about multicollinearity and the degree to which you truly can untangle certain variables by just using covariates. And if, if two factors are so related that they represent the same underlying thing, if you include one as a covariate, what is the actual impact that has on the true predictor? Yeah. And I know that this is getting a little deep for podcast content. Like this is kind of more the thing you sketch out in an article so you can give examples and things. But anyway, all of that well, is I, say, I would say it even goes a level deeper than that. Even if there is just like one covariate that that you know matters, and it's and you're not running into multicollinearity issues with the the variable of interest, uh, most modeling approaches still assume that the the relation that the covariate relationship is roughly linear. And so, if it's not a linear relationship, like if it's a, a curvilinear relationship of some sort, that's something other than linear, uh, that in and of itself can can introduce um, an additional level of error when you're interested in, in the actual relationship with the outcome of interest. Yeah. And so like, even if, even if you pass all of the checks, you don't have multicollinearity issues, you know that the covariate is something that should be included in your model. You don't always get that far by including it in your model unless you can do further tests and... You're really good at coding statistical software to, to assume that the covariates relationship isn't a linear relationship. But most of the time, they're they're just plugged in with the assumption that it's linear. Yeah. And so we are um, looking over a ledge that, that would, you know, sometimes you start talking about these things and people walk away with the conclusion like, oh, so like we don't know anything and never will. Like this stuff starts to feel really complicated and a little bit overwhelming but it's actually a really reassuring thing because uh, we collectively understand this nuance that goes into a body of research. And so there's nothing more frustrating than when you are looking at a body of research and something just doesn't work. Things don't fit together. And you're like, what is happening here? How do I work through this roadblock of misunderstanding? And that's the beauty of it is that this stuff is complicated such that if you really dig into it and start to unravel the complexity, you can say, okay, I think I understanding why this finding doesn't line up with that finding. I think I understand why this evidence doesn't reflect what's being uh, shown from this evidence. Like the complexity at first seems overwhelming and kind of makes you feel like, well, screw this. I'll do something else. Like I don't, I don't want anything to do with all this complexity, but it actually, the, the complexity is the the opening for us to actually make sense of incomplete data and incomplete understanding. It allows us to dig deeper and contextualize some of the things that are really hard to understand on the surface. So mm -hmm. so that's a really positive thing. But the 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 moral of the story is 
you got to make sure that whenever you're looking at a research finding, it, it's always so that you are, you, you never want to lose sight of the full body of evidence. So don't just get locked into the mechanistic basic science and Petri dishes. Don't just get locked into the epidemiology. Put all of it together. Basic science, epidemiology, randomized controlled trials, well-done meta-analyses, they all work together. Um, and that's it's a really beautiful thing when they come together and you say, this is the mechanism driving this effect in experiments, which is why we see this observation at the population level. And this meta-analysis quantifies the relationship effectively. Like mm -hmm. that's when it all comes together and it's a beautiful thing. And then all the arguments are more or less done theoretically. Hopefully. Yeah. Yeah. What, one other thing I'll, I'll just add just to kind of put a bow on this discussion, because I, I assume we probably need to move on, is I think broadly speaking, um, there's I, I think there are issues with with science communication um, such that in my conception, at least there are studies that are that that I th I think at least should almost exclusively just be read and interpreted by other scientists. And then there are studies that other scientists should also read and interpret, but that are essentially safe for public consumption, uh, if you will. And I would largely put most epi research in the category of not safe for public consumption. Not because there's anything wrong with it, but as you're alluding to, like different types of studies have different purposes. And epi research more often than not, uh, is, is kind of like hypothesis generating research where it's basically like, what trends do we see on a population level? Uh, what sorts of like, what magnitudes of effects are we seeing? Okay. Like we've now identified these associations and it's time to do some actual experimental research to see if these broader trends do actually pan out as interventions. Uh, and then if they do, then maybe that goes over to the public health people and they can make some recommendations, blah, blah, blah. Um, but yeah, like I, I think that, <laughs> I, I think that like a lot of, and, and I would say the same about animal research as well. Like there, there are so many animal studies that get a ton of headlines that people just have no business reading because like, unless you, Unless you spend a lot of time kind of in science, it's get, it's going to be difficult to interpret stuff in a way such that you actually come to to useful conclusions and you're not like way over interpreting everything. And I ultimately don't blame the public for this, and I really don't blame science journalists all that much for it. Even though I I do blame some of them a little bit. Um, more than anything, I I blame university press departments for it because <laughs> like. Uh, this, the stuff that gets out that major outlets pick up and write about more often than not is the stuff that university press departments push. Like, uh, some researchers have some findings that seem kind of splashy. Um, they're not necessarily expecting the journalists to read every word of the actual published research article. Uh, they kind of package the findings and maybe like a couple little quotes from the researchers in a press package and just send it out to a bunch of journalists to say like, Hey, like, do you want clicks in your, uh, in your health section of your publication? Well, cool. We've basically written an article for you and now you just need to change some paragraphs, which it would be great if that's not how 
a lot of that industry functioned, but uh, the way journalism works now, like the the expectations for the level of output that is expected of journalists tends to be pretty ridiculous. And so like they're generally not going to have time to dig super, super deep into each study they need to write about for their publication. And so basically the university press departments just do most of that work for them uh, and, and kind of prepackage the story for them. And dude, university press departments don't need to be sending out press releases for fucking rodent studies or for a lot of uh, epidemiological studies. Like, I, I think that, I think that ultimately that's the the prime mover in this information flow. I think that a lot of bad stuff comes of it. Um, so yeah, like I. I largely view that research is is more just the stuff that scientists should talk about amongst themselves and then once you have more applied experimental research in human studies then let's get it out to the public that's that, that's the the type of stuff that one is going to be more relevant for people and two is just more difficult to misinterpret <laughs> and so uh that's that's kind of my perspective on it yeah and you know it's i i think sometimes people underestimate the harm that comes from the splashy headlines because mm-hmm. I've talked to people who really don't take an interest in, you know, the this public health science um at all. They they just would like to live a long healthy life if they can. Yeah. And a lot of times the result of these splashy headlines that um are not robust is it leads a lot of people in the general public to just kind of throw up their hands and say, "Yeah, you're telling me red wine is great, but you told me three months ago that it gives me cancer. So what am I supposed to do with this? You know, mm-hmm. and it can be a really frustrating thing. And when you brought up this topic, one of the reasons I was like, oh, this is going to I'm going to have a lot to say. Uh, when I was working on my Ph.D., I was in a fellowship and there was an open opportunity. If you want to create a course at this university from scratch that is accessible to you, you just got to pitch the idea. And I was like really like that that's a, a quite quite a lot of freedom to to hand off to mm-hmm. to students you know grad students but anyway i got together with a group of people and we made a course that was explicitly on interpretation and communication of science and it was a really fun course because it was me who was doing randomized controlled trials uh, great start. I, I I just enjoyed how long that pause was. It was great because it was me. <laughs> All right, m- moving on. Yeah. Anyway, what's next? No. Yeah. Our our next segment. We have a research. Re- <laughs> no. What I was getting at. I was doing RCTs almost exclusively, a yeah. little bit of meta analysis, and I partnered up with an epidemiologist who taught a third of the course, and we also partnered up with a physicist who did um, all of her research was simulations. It was like, I'm going to write insanely complex code, hit go, and a supercomputer is going to chew on it for like two days. Like stuff that I can't even begin. I don't know if she if she could even explain to me a general concept of what she studied, like (laughs) the intelligence discrepancy was enormous, but anyway, it was a really fun dynamic because, you know, we can't just go in there and say, ah, screw all the basic science and and the theory and screw all the epidemiology. RCTs are the real science. Cause like 
my colleagues wouldn't let me get away with it, right? And and that's not a good take. So it was a nice combination of like, we represent all these different types of science. Let's talk about the strengths and the weaknesses, the ways to communicate, and so on. And it was a great it was a great course in my opinion. But um, you know, one of the things that I think we, in hindsight, we are young. One of the things that we mi- kind of whiffed on was we didn't focus enough on what you mentioned, which is the university press release <laughs> driving a lot of the uh, misinterpretations. I, I think if I could do that course again, I would have been a little bit easier on the uh, health science journalist side of things yeah. and a little bit more harsh on the university press release side of things. But that does kind of lead into one of the questions I saw in the Q&A uh, thing. So uh, I hope you don't mind if I jump ahead here. Nah, go for it. But Logan Fitness asked, what's the advice or viewpoint that you've shared over the years that you most regret giving? Something that you've done a total 180 on it and you're now embarrassed for for having said it out loud or kind of uh, putting your name on it. So the reason I thought of this, I was like, you know, if I could go back and, and redo some of those lectures, you know, that's one of the areas we could have improved it. But I'm curious to see how you would answer this. Yeah, so the the question itself, at, are we just on to Q&A segment now? Yeah. All right, Q&A time. Um, so yeah, one of the operative words, I think, in this question was regret. What, what do you most regret uh, giving? And honestly, I don't have a ton of regrets uh, as it relates to advice that I've given people, largely because, to me, like, I, I very much don't want to be wrong, but also it doesn't bother me that much. Like I I try to avoid it to the greatest extent possible, but also if you're putting content out into the world and doing the best job you can for long enough, you're going to be wrong from time to time. And I think you need to have kind of thick skin about that uh, and, and not just let the mere fact that you're wrong or that you have been wrong, keep you up at night. You know, you just correct the record, move on. Um, I think I think there's only much room for regret if advice that you've given uh, is likely to have tangibly caused non-trivial harm. And so I don't think any of the stuff I've said has really caused harm, um, largely because I think when I had a much larger proportion of bad ideas, I also had a much smaller audience. <laughs> and so no matter what I told people, like the 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 possibility of harm was very constrained. Um, but the the one that I look back on, I fitness related at least, and cringe the most, uh, is is I did used to be a very big keto guy, just fully drank the Kool Aid, um, and like in in my defense, that was before I had even completed my bachelor's. Like I I was very stupid, um, but yeah, I, I was I was like all aboard the keto train for a while. Um, not the proudest uh, moment of my life. I also used to really, really drink the West Side Kool-Aid when it came to training. Um, and I wouldn't say I've completely done a 180 on that, but I have moderated my views a little bit. I used to think West Side is the best side. Like, that's that's how that's how everyone has to train if they want to get super strong and, and freaky huge. Um, and, like, now I think, if anything, the pendulum has swung too far back the other way where... Uh, a lot of people are very down on West Side. Like, it's it's not chic anymore. I, I think basically now it's an effective training method 
within an ocean of effective training methods. Um, you know, it's very fun, works well for a lot of people, not all that special. Um, but yeah, th those are, <laughs> those are probably the two biggest things most directly related to the general content of this podcast. Um, again, going back to the concept of regret and, and whether spreading views may have had, uh, done harm or had serious negative ramifications. This is something that I don't regret, but that I do also, uh, very much cringe when I think about. So if occasionally when the topics may be related to marijuana come up on this podcast, we play characters of, uh, being very conservative, kind of like 1980s moral majority members as a bit, uh, because of how ridiculous, at least I find like the anti-drug rhetoric that, uh, persists to today. But, uh, I did actually used to be a very fundamentalist Christian and young earth creationist. <laughs> and that's how I was raised. Once I got old enough to kind of look into things and start thinking for myself a little more, I realized like, oh yeah, no, no, that's, <laughs> that's not what I'm about. Uh, but I, I still think back to having conversations maybe related to the age of the earth when I was like 12, 13. And I'm like, oh no, Greg, what did you do? What, what do those people think about you today? <laughs> but, but to uh, be fair, <laughs> wasn't it your mother that clipped that segment from land? Yes. The time? yes. So like you didn't get access to that whole documentary as a kid. <laughs> that, that is true. Um, yeah, so uh, Land Before Time was one of my favorite movies, and like I would watch it maybe probably more than once a week as like a very small child. But the intro to the movie, like I don't know exactly what it says because it wasn't present in the copy of the VHS I had. But I think it says something a along the lines of sixty-five million years ago, blah blah blah, the dinosaurs and. I only know it's it ends with the dinosaurs because that's where the version of the VHS I had picked back up. Um, yeah, with a VHS tape, uh, our younger listeners may not understand how that technology worked uh, if the first uh, video medium you remember was DVDs. But VHS tapes, like, there's basically just little frames that, uh, like, a light is shown through and then it's kind of red and it's projected... Uh, onto your CRT, but there's... Yeah, ask your grandparents. Yeah, but, but like, each frame contains an image on it. And so, like, you can... You, you could manually edit them by just opening it up, pulling the tape out, finding the, the set of frames that corresponded with material that you didn't want to expose people to, and then literally just cut it. And like suture it back together. Yeah, I mean and, earlier I used the term on the cutting room floor. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. That is where yeah. it comes from, yeah. Yeah, that's that's how that's how film used to be edited. But you know, with that that would be like big film Correct, reels. Yeah. But, but same same idea. Yeah, you could doctor a VHS tape the exact same way. And that's that's what my mom did to our copy of Land Before Time. Any mention of the earth being more than 6,000 years old had been excised from the cop. And so, like you said, if I would have been exposed to the entirety of that documentary evidence, um, maybe I would have changed my mind sooner, but yeah. <laughs> oh man, that's, that's awesome. Yeah. For me, um, like I said, like I, I can go back and 
I've been given talks and teaching and you, you can go back to a lecture and say like, oh yeah, I used to think things about like uh, plant-based protein sources that I would revise or I, I used to say things about acute muscle protein synthesis findings that really overextend an appropriate interpretation of them. But I, d I wouldn't say I regret it because it was doing my best with what I had. You know, yeah. some of that evidence has really changed a lot since I would say those things. And ultimately, I I've always tried to hedge my bets in the direction of non-harm, right? So like, uh, I've never been one to say, you know what, let's try something crazy with nutrition. <laughs> you know, like I, I don't have a lot of good evidence, but let's go for it. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I think your, your, um, perspective is, is a healthy one, which is like, Hey, did my best with what I had, uh, tried to help people, didn't do anything too out of line. And you know, that's, that's really the only way to do it. Like if you were just absolutely terrified of saying something that was 5% wrong, it'd be really hard to make content, you know? Yeah, for sure. Um, so did you have any other Q and a stuff that you wanted to cover. We are uh, a minute or an hour 15 in here. Might yeah, be we, time to wrap it up. I I'd be very cool with that. That's, that's less prep work for the next episode. <laughs> uh, one thing I did want to mention here before we close out. So I've been trying to be more um, attentive to when I say things that might seem divisive uh, without appropriate context. Like uh, I'll say something and, the context in my mind isn't divisive, but the way it comes out sounds divisive. So, you know, we kind of had some chuckles at the expense of like the carnivore diet and the keto diet. And, you know, it, it, I just wanted to clarify, like, if you enjoy consuming a diet like that, that doesn't bother me. I don't think you're a dumb person. I, I don't uh, like I don't lose sleep over that. And I certainly wouldn't want to disparage an individual who gravitates toward those options. Like, I think it's really hard. I cannot think of a context where I would call a carnivore diet a an optimal approach to nutrition. And I can think of a lot of ways it can go wrong. Um, so like, I'm not a big fan of it, but I don't consider that to be a, a personal flaw. And, mm -hmm. and I, I don't like poke fun at people who are... Uh, you know, maybe getting some information about those diets that isn't reliable and isn't solid. Uh, and with keto, you know, th there are ways to do a keto diet that is completely feasible and and not um, not an issue whatsoever. Yeah, just just to clarify that further, because that 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 is a good point. Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of very defensible ways to set up a, a ketogenic diet. Um, I, I think what I regret more than anything. Uh, is I had fully bought into the carbohydrate insulin model yeah. of uh, obesity, weight gain, whatever. Um, and that, I think, is completely scientifically bankrupt. Uh, so that that is what I regret more than merely recommending ketogenic diets. Yeah, the, yeah. the thing for me is the, the hype, right? So, like, you know, I, I currently consume a vegetarian diet, but at the same time, when Game Changers came out, I was like, Hey guys, we can just say like, Hey, here's an option. We don't have to go like way overboard with the claims and, and kind of get ridiculous with it. Yeah. And I was in the same place as you where there was a time between like 2012 and 2014 when 
if you if you had your finger on the pulse of the research but hadn't really built the skills to truly dive into it you would have thought due to the trajectory of the way research was going that the ketogenic diet was magic like that there was something profoundly special that makes it optimal in a variety of conditions and and that was a uh, a version of Kool-Aid that a lot of people got swept up in. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it, it's not about saying like, oh man, the idea of entertaining a ketogenic diet is so dumb, but getting caught up in the hype, like I think a lot of people were there. Oh yeah. And myself included, I was very intrigued by it. And in hindsight, you say, ah, damn it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Wish I could have that perspective back. Um, but anyway, Wrapping up the show here, uh, to play us out, we did not forget about the feats of strength. We've got a, a special one here. And Greg, since this is your territory, I will let you take over. Yeah, so uh, it finally happened, I think. The 800-pound bench press barrier uh, appears to have been broken. Daniel Zamani uh, posted a training video of himself bench pressing 365 kilos, which is about 805 pounds. Uh, and so just, just for, just to rewind a bit, we've talked about this guy before on the podcast. I've previously expressed some skepticism and trepidation regarding whether his lifts are in fact legit or not. Um, that trepidation is, hasn't gone away entirely but i the more the more i see of this guy the more legit i think his lifts are uh and, and you can watch this video for yourself it'll be embedded in the show or it'll be linked in the show notes um the bar behaves as if there's an enormous amount of weight on it and if you just look at the guy he looks like a guy who would bench press <laughs> an outrageous amount of weight so i do Stand by my statement that I want to see him compete in a meet with weights that we know to be calibrated and the appropriate weights. Um, you know, there is always the possibility when all you're seeing is gym lifts that people are posting on social media. May, maybe something isn't above board, but I, I, I personally used to be far more skeptical than I am now. I do still retain some degree of skepticism. Um, I would still love to see him compete. But I think that this video that you can see by, by clicking on it in the show notes, I do think that, that it's the, the first 800-pound bench press, which we all thought that Julius Maddox was going to do. But Zamani just came out of nowhere, fucking monster, and uh, just, just hitting insane numbers. Um, and I don't know, man. Like, watching this lift... It it makes me think back to kind of like the the history of the bench press and powerlifting because like the first equipped eight hundred pound bench press didn't fall all that long ago. Um, you have like thirty seconds of input, so I can just really quick Google when the first eight hundred pound equipped bench press. Sure. Was. Yeah. Yeah. Um, no, I mean looking at this video, uh, like you said, it initially you weren't the you weren't just like some rogue actor saying I call BS on these lifts. I mean there were a lot of people in the comments as he was posting videos into the mid and high seven hundreds saying I don't know are are we sure about this? But yeah, you look at this video of him benching eight oh four. The way the bar is moving looks like it's got 
at least 803 pounds. <laughs> yeah. Know, like I, I'm, I'm definitely a, a believer and, and I think a lot of people are coming around to that perspective. Yeah. So the, the first 800 pound equipped bench press was Tim Isaac in 1999, which isn't that, isn't all that long ago. Um, and so I don't know, man, it's, this is, this is making my head spin like 700 seemed to be the final frontier for the bench press, at least in terms of hundred pound barriers. And then when Julius Maddox started chipping away at it, pushing it up into 760, 770, it's like, oh shit, 800 is going to happen. But then I don't know. There's a part of me deep within my soul that wants to say, we have seen the final hundred pound barrier fall for the raw bench press. But like, I don't know, man, who's to say, uh, will, will 900 ever happen? Or is this the final frontier? Like with, with the mile, for example, when a sub four minute mile happened, you knew that that was the last minute barrier, just like due to certain constraints within human physiology. Um, Unless just like track surfaces and the equipment allowed changes dramatically, we're never going to see a sub three mile, but like, and same thing with the marathon. It's like sub two is it. Yeah. We're not, we're like, not going to see a sub one marathon. Yeah, It's, it's ridiculous. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, with, with the bench press, I don't, I don't know what those physiological constraints are. So uh, every time a new barrier is broken, that, allows us to see a little bit further beyond the horizon to say like, well, you know, before it was in question, like, was this barrier possible to break? Well, now we know that it is. How about the next one? We really don't know. Um, so yeah, I, I very much hope that this lift is real. And like I said, at, at this, at this moment, I do think that it is. Um, and yeah, it, it, it makes me really excited because, Another big milestone has been shattered, and and I'm excited to see what'll come next. I'm excited to see him and Julius Maddox go toe to toe. Yeah, I think that would be such a fun event if they can logistically pull it off. Yeah, uh, the the meet that they were supposed to do, like the the reason Zamani hit this 800 in the gym is he was planning on hitting it at at the meet that was planned. That I think was supposed to have either been this past weekend or this upcoming weekend. Um, it ended up getting canceled because, or like ended up just not happening because uh, Julius Maddox, I think got a shoulder injury mm. um, and had to pull out. So yeah, the the actual competition status of all of this is still kind of up in the air. I, I do want to see this number done in a meet, but you know, under the assumption that these gym weights weigh the same as comp weights, like weights weight, uh, I ultimately don't care where a lift happens as long as as long as the weight moves. Like it's a good lift in my book. Um, yeah, man, you you should watch the video. It's it's insane. He's he's so freaky strong, and just when he when he re racks the weight, just just watching the bar, like. So I do, I previously have done a fair bit of heavy rack pulls back when I respected gym equipment a little bit less. Like if I'm going to go heavy now, it's going to be block pulls. But I used to do some very heavy, pretty disrespectful rack pulls. And the way that the bar flexes when he re-racks it for a fucking bench press looked the same way as like 
you know, you're doing seven, 800 pound rock, rack pulls and just sit the bar down really hard on the rack, like the same level of oscillation, which, which is the thing that's, that sells me on it. Like, I don't know. I, I think that suspect plates are a lot easier to pull off than like an extra whippy bar. Um, like I, you, you, you would need to go to considerable links to pull off that sort of fraud, I think. So yeah, I, I think it's real and I want to see it in a meet. Yeah, good stuff. All right, so that does it for this episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. As always, thank you for joining us and we will be back in one week. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.